This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Welcome, welcome back to Studio Secrets A to Z. I'm Anthony J. Resta, your host, and we are diving right into part two with Skip Sailor. Well, I've been to your Discogs page, and I mean, it, the list goes for days. I mean, you got Aretha Franklin, you've got like just it's an insane list. So I just I don't want to rewind too far forward, but I just want to like get into when you started working on all these amazing sessions that you're known for. To last, we'll call it fifty years. Yeah. Okay, because the first time I got it. A, a job as a janitor, you know, where they don't even allow you in the room except after everybody's gone and you're, you're just there to clean up, okay? Um, so first time I get a janitor's job to right now is 50 years, okay? So it depends on what age group and what music group you're from is, is what you need to, re what what you remember me by, you know? Some people remember me by you know, R&B and funk records in the early 80s. But now there's a different group of people from that same tire, time period that would remember me for punk records. Because if you're going to make it, you learn to put on a different shirt depending on who your client is. Yeah, that's great advice. Okay, like, you know... If you're going to work with an R&B group, you might want to tuck in your shirt. If you're going to work with a punk band, you should consider getting a sweatshirt and tearing the arms off of it, okay? And if if you're working for... But now, if you're working for the R&B band, you can wear a darker shirt, like brown or black or, you know. But if you're doing a commercial... You want a light shirt that tucks in, you know, like white or pink or yellow, you know, you want to be, you want to brighten up the session. This is really good studio secret <laughs> stuff right here. <laughs> I mean, I'm serious. I, I used to, I used to do a lot of commercials for this guy, you know, Albertsons and Circle K and, you know, all, all these, you know, Mattel. You know, um, those are like live dates. They're like you do them like in two hours or three hours or something, right? Yeah. Well, except for the vocals. I mean, you do the you, you know you do the you do the tracks in two hours, and then you know yep. the vocal has to be exactly right, and you got you know a guy from the agency there who you know will sit there and tell you you got to rewrite the script right in the middle of the session and stuff like that. You know, like the I think it's designed to torture you, you know. <laughs> I, I used to think this one guy that did I did commercials for was just mean until I did enough sessions with him to see what he went through. And the fact that he never stabbed me in the eye with a letter opener just to kind of <laughs> vent his frustrations, not at me. I wasn't doing anything to... You know, but these guys would just torture him because they, you know, they were going, they were producing on the fly, shall we say? Yeah. You know, and making him rewrite the music and rewrite the script and rewrite the lyric and all this kind of stuff and do it in 59.7 seconds. Sure. That's crazy stuff. Okay. Um, and then he'd, then they'd say, you know, so he had a certain tempo 
for 59.7 seconds, and they'd say, it's too down, it needs to be upbeat. Well, you don't just take the VSO and turn it up and turn it into a 50-second commercial. That's before time-stretching, too. Right. You you sit there. I mean, this was, you know, the musicians have already left, and, they, and the guy says, I, you know, I want it fast now. So, you know, it's unbelievable. But at one point I was doing him almost every day during the day and having to dress real nice and then doing and producing punk records at night. And, you know, he'd say, I can't let my clients see that you even know these punk rock guys, you know. <laughs> so it would be like, you know, you dress a certain way during the day and then you have to, you know, run, put a different shirt on, you know, take your tennis shoes off and put boots on. You know, I mean, just the whole <laughs> the whole bit, you know, it would be like a, a costume change at, at, at a play, you know because they couldn't stand each other and the punk rockers didn't want to know that you were doing commercial. a circle k commercial either that wasn't cool yeah you know what are some of some other highlights like besides guns and roses that you could talk about like in some of those moments where you felt like wow i've i've really you know accomplished you know what i came here to do you know i mean hmm. I, I know you've done a lot of different styles of music hip-hop and um, soul music, uh, R and B, and stuff. What are some of the like, as a, as a, you know as an engineer and um, producer? Like, what's some of your favorite? What are you most proud of? Um, well, there's different things for different reasons. Okay, I've never been. Oh, I worked with Guns N' Roses, so that's it. You know, no. it's never. It's always been about the track for me, yeah, and the song, and and not the song from the standpoint of, you know, oh gee, I want to I, I want to work on Bridge Over Troubled Water and Let It Be, you know, yeah, or I Will Always Love You by Whitney, you know, it's not. It, it's it. I've always been in love with the record okay and i've like i've always said there's a difference between a hit song and a hit record um i will always love you is a hit song only owner of a lonely heart is a hit record wow that's a great really cool comparison that i've never heard anybody make like that that's wonderful and the reason that i will always love you is a hit song is because you know I could pick up one of these guitars that's sitting in front of me and sing you, I will always love you. A little bit out of tune and you'd still like it. Okay? Yep. Because it's a hit song. But if I pick up one of these guitars and start strumming it and sing you, Owner of a Lonely Heart, you're going to poke your eyes out. This is great. This is good stuff. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, cause, uh, There's no way I can strum "Owner of a Lonely Heart" on a on a um, guitar, yeah, on an acoustic guitar and make you like it. It's just, but that's a that that's one of my favorite records of all time. It's, it's soundscape of it's just Trevor is just it's genius. You know, it's like, I mean, that came out. I think I was 27 years old. And I thought my career was over because I said, I have no idea how they got any of those sounds. You know, because it was one of those early sampler sure, records when lighter. they were beta, yeah. beta testing samplers. Sure. And we hadn't seen them yet. Yeah. This was an English thing, you know? Yep. And I heard that and I went, I don't care what I'm working on. I'm like a organic folk artist compared to this, you know. I may be doing Confunction or Tom Petty or something, but this shit is next level. I thought it was over. Yeah. 
Now, a year later, we were all capable of making an owner of a lonely heart ish type record of some variety sure because we had the samplers and stuff yep. you know we'd you know gu- guitar center had had called us in to see the new this that or the other thing and you know the emulator you know that yeah, big old the e3 or the e, the emulator the with the big floppy disks that you put in yeah and, and it was affordable know, compared to like a synclavier or a fairlight which was hundreds of thousands of dollars and and even though you pushed the key and had to wait a few seconds for the sound to come out, you know, I mean, it was pretty cumbersome. You could make a sandwich while it was loading. Right. And, and stuff. But, you know, at least at least we understood how they were kind of getting a, getting to it. OK. Yep. But at the time that it came out and then uh, then, you know, Grace Jones slave to the rhythm. Yeah. You know, great one. which I. I call that the first obvious SSL record, okay? Because we had no idea how to make shit go. Boom. Left speaker, right speaker, back to the left, and then over your head. And, you know, I mean, it was just basically... You know, doing a bunch of weird shit with the SSL automation, you know, the early SSL automation. But at the time, that was like, oh, my God. So Trevor Horn, you know, was like, I mean. Yeah, no, he's iconic. Yeah. A friend of mine in, in England, um, uh, um, Cariati, what's the... the Nick Richards, he owned Maison Rouge, mm. and he worked. He watched Trevor work a bunch, and he had a, this really amazing keyboard tech guy, uh, Andy Richards. He did like all the, you know, the MIDI stuff for for him, mm-hmm. and it was a real quick funny story. They were listening to the playback. They were actually mixing down Frankie Goes to Hollywood, Relax, mm-hmm. and they're recording it to the half the, the, the half inch, you know, the master. And Andy gets up in the middle and goes, wait, wait, wait. And they stop. They stop. And he goes out into the room and he has his keyboard set up coming through a PA and they hear booming through the glass. Bomb, bomb, bomb. He's like, it, it's missing something. <laughs> I mean, that's the kind of shit that I love those stories because it's like that song without that. It's like, it, you know, so you know, sometimes you know, the, 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 these things come to people at the weirdest times and, you know, and it's a team, right? So Trevor had a team, a really great team around him, and I, I'm sure you've seen that over the years. Like this, you know, people that that, that have these iconic records. And it's 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 not just one guy. It's, it's well, yeah. I mean, one of my favorite sayings is that music is a team sport. Absolutely. You know, I can't. I, you know, I tell people the only record that I can think of that was even remotely a one-man band was McCartney's first record you know him and a recording engineer went up into the hills of Scotland and made that first record but other than that I can't even think of you know somebody who's been a one-man band who made a great record yeah Prince Prince made a few but you know he even he had started to surround himself with with other musicians and stuff and yeah I mean you know he I mean, the stuff that he did at Sunset Sound, you know, that was very team sport-ish, you know? I mean, I don't know, I don't know that much about Prince. I don't have any inside information on that, but I never get the feeling that he was a one-man band as much as he was a control freak and there's only one God when he was in the room (laughs) and it wasn't you or me. You know, no, it, it's that, true. It is a team sport, and I think a lot of the best collaborations uh, come from that. Absolutely. So you know, the, the you were asking me, you know, yeah. what what are some highlights? Some, some okay. of your favorites, yeah. Um, Tom Petty's "Damn the Torpedoes." I was a kid, and it, now what's really funny is I I was on staff at at Cherokee in those days. Okay, so they they booked time at Cherokee. Now, Cherokee was known for doing, you know, the, I mean, not so much, it wasn't so much hair metal in those days, but the big iconic rock bands, you know, The Cars, Rod Stewart, um, you know, uh, Foreigner, 
Okay. Yeah, gotcha. Not the first foreigner, but the ones with Roy Thomas Baker, you know, that weren't as good, but they were more iconic, shall we say, yeah. you know, yeah. double vision, that kind of stuff, yeah. right? And so this little cult artist is booking time. Yeah, he hadn't really even had a hit record yet, you know? He'd had American Girl that was more known as a bird's ripoff. Yep. And Breakdown that had gotten into the 30s or something, you know? But he was the, you know, he was the artist that could get 2,500 people to come anywhere to see him. Right. But he couldn't fill up 6,000. Yeah. Let alone 10,000. Yeah. Let alone twenty thousand, you know, but he was, you know, this this cult. I mean, they, you know, I remember somebody calling him a cult artist. You know, he had a little cult following. Yeah. Okay. So, not for any other reason than the fact that he wasn't Rod. Okay. Nobody wanted the project, and I went, "Oh fuck, I'll do it." I I kind of dig him, and plus. Jimmy Iovine and, and uh, Shelly Yakis are doing it. And Shelly Yakis, you know, all the way back to the Raspberries records, you yeah, know. Famous engineer. Not to mention, you know, um, the, the the Reaper song. Oh, yeah, um, Blue Easter Cult. Blue Easter Cult, you know, um, all that. And, and Jimmy wasn't real well known, but he, you know, he'd been a uh, an engineer on Born to Run and sure. you know got a cup of coffee on John Lennon and and um had done the uh Patty Smith you know because of the night which yep. was a Bruce song yeah so you know he had a few things that I appreciated you know yep. and Shelley was like fuck yeah you know cuz yep. um and and, you know, Shelley is another one that, you know, is that James Bond, Gomer Pyle kind of thing. You know, inside the room, Shelley Yakis is James Bond. You know, he, in a control room, that man is more handsome than, than Sean Connery ever dreamed of being. Outside the control room, eh, not so much. But inside the control room, that guy is as good as has ever been. Okay. So I said, sure, I'll, I'll do this cult artist, you know, sign me up, okay? Because I was kind of, I was kind of new there at that point, you know, I hadn't been there that long and stuff, and I, I, you know, it was never about, you know, I, I, I've never been the guy that wanted to work with Rod because Rod was Rod, right? you know? So I was good with this, cult artist named Tom Petty. Well, you know, I was locked into a room with those guys for months because they they didn't do anything fast. Yeah. They everything was slow and easy yeah. with those guys. So, you know, every mix was 10 days or something, yeah. you know. So, I learned a lot. Was there automation From, during that time? No. So I would, all you know what on. my nickname was? What? Total Recall. Because it was my job to measure the faders and to write down the EQ settings for every channel. And I, I, I had, you know, the, the uh, quarter inch um, uh, white gaffer's tape on each fader yeah. and had to, you know, cut it at the at the top of the fader so that I knew when I put it back that it would come back into the same place. Yeah. You know? Like big responsibility. Right. And if and if the, the sticky came off the back too much, I had to put, you know, get another piece of brand new and put the markings where and I'd had the, the numbers on the on the uh um tape machine, you know, so that, you know, you come to this mark it two minutes and 38 seconds and stuff. So you could, you know, if you were quick enough 
and you were astute enough, you didn't even have to listen. You could take my notes, you could take my fader settings and stuff, and you could do the mix just by following the notes. Yeah. Shelley even called the book that he, he says, I, you know, he, when I talked to him a few years ago, he goes, you know, I still pull out, if I want the guitar sound from Here Comes My Girl, I can still pull out the Bible that you wrote for me and say, we used a Fender Twin with a, you know, wow. with a 421, you know, 27 inches from the, from so the get, cabinet. You documented everything. I documented everything. And I learned more on that session probably than any, you know, as far as real learning. Yeah. Um, and mostly it was because it wasn't like hut and peck, find it, and okay, that's what works and stuff. Because I had to document it all, it all kind of stuck in my brain. Right. And so, you know, and, you know, Shelly Shelley was never, you know, I'm the great Shelly Yakis and, and, you know, you're the dirt on the bottom of my boot. He was never that guy. He was the guy that, you know, if you were loyal to him, he was loyal to you, you know. And so because of that, I got to actually learn what was going on. And, and you know, he uh, um, I'm not sh I'm not sure that, you know, I mean, we discovered a few things together. I learned a lot from him. But, you know, because he let me be on the team, you know, yeah, that's I would, you know, I got to say a few times, well, hey, how about, you know, why don't you try that? And he'd look at me like, should I be listening to this kid? And then he'd, then he'd try it. And sometimes it worked, you know. So it, it felt like I got to touch the ball. Yeah. Refugee, which is, in my opinion, the most iconic Tom Petty song ever. Breakthrough, yeah. Um, and at the time, nobody had ever referenced living like a refugee to a love relationship. You know, nobody had ever drawn that. You know, even the word refugee was kind of a new word. You know, it yeah. was one that had come out of the Middle East, but it was not, it, it was not in everybody's vocabulary. Yeah. So for him to even come up with the word refugee was kind of, kind of cool, yeah. you know. But they had tried this, you know. They had thirty-eight rolls of two-inch, wow, of outtakes of refugee. For some oh, reason, wow. it was the, it was the toughest song they ever put down. Put down could get. I mean, and that point, yeah. I, I'm not even sure why, you know, I, you know, and Tom's gone now to, to, you know, say it, but he had tried it for other records. It was not a brand new song, you know. Pantheon Podcast listeners, Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house, and my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles, plus awareness mode. Available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. 
Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So, what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right, you'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. As a fly on the wall d- during those types of that many takes and that many reels, were they all playing together on the floor, um, or did they use a click track? Is there anything you can remember from the session? Um, I mean, I wasn't there for a lot of the drum tracks. Yeah, you know they they did the drum tracks at uh, Sound City. Okay, Sound City was one of those studios that if you had no money and you needed to really work on getting your tracks you went to sound city because they had that great big room there with that 28 channel console and even though you couldn't do anything but drums in that room it was good it was a good drum room it was a neve too right yeah it was like a you know 28 channel you know whatever it was a 80 28 or something you know um, I mean, it was an old, beat-up one. But, you know, you could you could take two months to get your drum tracks because the room was cheap, didn't have any real equipment in it, you know. And so if you had to iron stuff out, quite often, you know, you get the big room at, at Sound City. Um, I see. But the minute you got done with your drums you got the heck out of there yeah but you know the very fact that i got to work on that because you know he wasn't he wasn't big then yeah and so you know i've always i've always told the young ones you know the young guys don't be a critic i go if you want to be a critic go get a job with the la times there's a guy that named Robert Hilburn that has an opinion on everything and make him your hero and work and work for a newspaper that's great advice I said but if you want to work in a studio one move you can make one move and you bring the whole thing down 50% I said so winning you make shit 5% better Losing, you can make it 50% worse. So try to be that 5%. Well, that's try to be that guy that I said, hey, here's your gold record. You get done with the record, and somebody in the band or the artist looks at you and says, this is a better record because you were here. That's your 10 times platinum right there. Yep. You know? Which goes to what I was going to say, my favorite project I ever worked on. One of them. Band out of New Zealand called Specifics. We won everything over in New Zealand. I mean, album of the year, single of the year, video of the year, you know, best coffee of the year, you know, best grilled cheese of the year. I mean, we won everything everything in that country it never walked on water it got a a little bit of play in australia never came to america nothing um i tracked it over there in the middle of winter in a dank stinky basement where you could see your breath in the lounge it was so cold okay and i mean it was like you know what, what's that? What's that movie that you know the famous movies that get shot over there? The the Hobbit. Stuff. Oh yeah, oh yeah, the Lord the of the Rings and stuff. You know, and there's moss growing everywhere in the that movie and yeah. stuff. Well, that's New Zealand. I mean, New Zealand's freaking cold. You know, I mean, I guess it's probably nice in summertime, which is our winter. Yeah. You know. Flip flop. So, you know. You probably want to go over there in January. You don't want to be there in July. I can tell you that. I mean, I'm, you know, 
I'm wearing a parka in the studio and trying to, you know, wrap myself around a Neve because that's the only thing that's warm is the console. <laughs> you know, you don't need any air conditioning, I can tell you that. You know, to find a place in America where you can have a, a Neve or an SSL on and you still don't need air conditioning because it's that damn cold. So I cut it over there, brought it back over here, did you know the the last of the vocals in the mix and stuff over here, um, and uh, um, when I got done with the record, uh, there was a, the the leader of the band was a guy named Dow, and I said, "So Dow, what do you think?" He said, "This record turned out better than I ever could have dreamed it would have turned out." That's a great reward. And that, you know, since I was the sole producer on it, that went, that was it. That's the best moment I've ever had. I'll have to check in, that. In the industry. I'd love to hear that one. Um, love you to play. And, you know, it was a bunch of 18 and 19 year old kids. You know, we didn't, it wasn't. It wasn't, you know, the Beatles, you know, Abbey Road, you know. It was a bunch of kids, you know. And, uh, you know, it was just, it That's was That's wonderful. Great. That's a wonderful story. And, uh, you know, I feel the same way. Like, some, a lot of the joy that comes to us in this industry is is seeing somebody so excited and happy at the results of, of the collaboration. It's like, it's it's just a, a it's a really great feeling. And in, in many cases, it's it's more rewarding than, you know, like some record that you worked on that got this or that accolade. It's like it's a different thing, and I I appreciate that about you. Well, and you know. Not picking on Guns N' Roses, but Guns N' Roses was big when they came in, big when they left, and doesn't remember my name. These guys will go to their grave remembering me. That's wonderful, yeah. And so, you know, which one means more? Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, I, I appreciate the fact that you know, people still ooh and ah when they see the gold records on the wall from that. But that's, you know, it wouldn't surprise me, not that I'm going to see it, but it wouldn't surprise me if one of the specific boys was at my funeral. There you go. Slash isn't coming to my funeral. Yeah. Well, that's profound, man. You know? Yeah. I, I saw some Def Leppard records on your wall. Um, yes. Tell, do, you, do you have any Mutt Lang stories for us? All you need to know about Mutt is that after an 18-hour day, you have to lock the door. You have to walk him to the door and lock it behind him. And he'll be there an hour early if you call it for a six-hour turnaround. He'll only sleep three, and he'll be, you know, eating eating a to-go breakfast burrito on your doorstep at, on your doorstep you know an hour before the session wow and everybody else will be dragging in a half hour late you know bringing a double starbucks <laughs> and he'll be without drugs without anything perky as all get out ready to go an hour early I mean, he's, wow, you know, Built. he's as he's as good of any record maker as you'll ever find. Talk about detail oriented, though. Jeez, oh. sounds fabulous. Do you have any other last minute like um, advice for young kids that are trying to learn how to record, like on their laptops and without all the the gear and stuff that we we're so used to being able to use over the years? Is there what's the best way to for young people to to cut their teeth on some good information. I was just having a discussion uh, yesterday with somebody about 
I don't understand how people work in the box. Because, like, I do... I, I don't necessarily do tons and tons of I'm the only engineer in the room mixes anymore. But I have some kid partners that I work with where they might do some, you know, tricky delay things that, yep. you know, you hear. And then I'll, I'll do the bottom end and, and you know, get the, the kick in the bass speaking so that they sound like two different instruments and they don't just mush together and stuff. So I'll, I'll, I'll do the foundation and they'll do some trim, you yep, know, sure. stuff like that. And I, I said to this person that I was working with, I said, I don't know how people work in the box because if I didn't have the console to lay all my channels out with when you say hey skip can you get the vocals here to speak a little bit more without changing those vocals that are on the same track and at the same time i'm losing the snare off of this loop if i had to you know, go into the computer and look at each one and take the time to go from the channel that had the vocals on it to the channel that had the drum loop on it, I'd get lost. But when I've got it laid out on a board, I can go, I can look at the vocals and look at the drum loop and say, well, they're, pu you know, he's pushing the vocals with the same exact frequency that he's pushing the drum loop. And I can see it in five seconds. Yeah, it's visual. And, you know, I even though I can hear it, the fact that I can look at it and see what the problem is and fix it immediately, I'm on to something more important in a matter of seconds than if I was in the box looking at channel 12 oh what channel is that vocal on uh, ooh, uh, uh, uh oh it's on 36 okay now let me go look at that okay let me let me pull up which plugins i've got on it yeah it can be a leviathan right i like the story you told me about somebody that told you early on in your career about look at the frequencies as a eight ounce glass yeah can you, can you tell me tell our friends about that Sure. Well, that was that was uh, I think Chuck Britz that did I get around on a three track, okay, which is still mind boggling because anybody who's listening to this, you know, podcast. podcast has some sort of you know Pro Tools M box or yep. Steinberg this or you know Cubase right something right. they got something yep. going on and. <laughs> So they know, uh, you know, that uh, um, you got all these channels and you're going down to a stereo bus. So the stereo bus is your eight ounce glass. You know, you can't just keep cramming stuff into the stereo bus and have it talk to you. You know, at a certain point, it becomes mush. You know, the flavors are gone and you've, and you've stirred it up so much you can't taste the Grand Marnier. You can't taste the the Bailey's Irish cream. You can't taste the Kahlua. It just, it's soup. It's not even good soup. It's just soup. So part of that eight ounce glass that, you know, is your left, right, and really just left and right because center is just a part of your left and right, okay? So, you know, you got these two channels and, and you look at it like an eight ounce cup. You, you're only going to get so much into it. So, especially now that we've got, you know, I mean, a kid with his laptop has 80 channels. Okay. If he's got the junior kit. Yeah. Okay. He's got 80 channels and he's going to try to cram 80 channels into two. So it's, it's more important what you take out than it is what you put in. 
Sure, that's a lot of people don't understand that there's so much low energy that's taking up space that you can't even hear. Well, and and I don't know if I said it to you or not, but in the analog days, I only knew that the EQs turned to the right. If I wanted to brighten something up, I just went and found the high end and yanked on it till it was bright enough. And short of just bringing up a a tremendous amount of hiss, I never thought about it. Now I go, oh, I can't just, first of all, if you try to add, you know, plus 16 at 10K in digital, Ouch. you're bringing up so much what I call digital grunge that you'll tear an ear off. You know, yeah. you'll, you'll put a hole in your in your eardrum, you know, and you go, well, you know, I, I thought digital was supposed to be silent and stuff. Man, it's got a, it's got a, it's got a noise floor that's toxic, it, you know. It's, it, I, we wish it was, on, the noise floor on digital was only bringing up hiss, but you're bringing up, you know, toxic ear shattering ear shattering gunk that you know will ruin your whole record yeah okay so now you're now you're talking about you know what can i take away to get to have more space in my two channels because i'm trying to get 80 channels down to two yeah and so you know the first thing the first thing i do is if I've got one of these guys that put everything to a stereo channel, yeah. If it's not truly stereo, I just get rid of all of it. You know, get rid of the second channel. I just mute it all. So at least now, instead of eighty stereo channels, I got you know forty, 40 monos. Okay, well at least I can think about it a little better now. A little more room in the glass. Right. And, you know, then you start going through stuff and start going, look, I don't hear anything, you know, above 10K. And then you'll go over to 10K and you'll boost it way up, turn it way down. You don't hear anything. Right. Well, on that channel, you go minus 16 at 10K because... Let's just get rid of it. Let's just not even allow anything to go through. And then, you know, on the bottom end, if you don't hear anything at 50, then filter it out. Just just get rid of stuff, you and know? Make, make more room in the glass for everything to speak. Right, and, and you know, it, I think people are starting to figure out that 50 cycles doesn't have a sound. It's just a... a you know yeah. that is filling up the glass without giving you a note yeah you know um i mean i i i still use bernie grunman to for mastering i i do mastering for people and yet on my stuff that i care about i'll take to bernie okay because he's a legend yeah. wow well, he's just you know i always say you know when people say why do you pay the money to go see Bernie? Well, he did Thriller. Yeah. You Ze know? Zeppelin, too. He did a bunch. But he did Thriller. Yeah. I mean, the best sounding record ever. Yeah. You know? And if you, if you ever had the chance to listen to the original mixes versus his mastered version and how much it jumps out of the speakers at you, but still sounds... the the same yeah quote unquote that's what it's about you know you'd go oh my god what what does this guy do and you know bernie's bernie's funny because he'll you know i'll say well so what did you do well you know skip i don't really have to do too much to your stuff he said you know i thought it could take a little bit more low end so i added a quarter db at 50 cycles and and then I, I took out, you know, a, a half a dB at 250. 
and I went up to 25k and added a half a dB there. Well, first of all, dogs barely hear 25k, let alone human beings. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and and he's doing a quarter dB and a half a dB here and there. And I go, why does it sound 30% better when you claim you didn't do anything? Well, some of that is that Ben O'May was in the back room making that equipment. Making that equipment. All that stuff there was made. He's not down at Guitar Center buying an 1176. Yeah. It's this one-of-a-kind stuff. Yeah. And it's got a sound. And, you know, Ben O'May is part of his secret sauce there. Do you know who Ben O is? I don't. Okay. The guy that built the first A&M studios, but actually the guy that was the recording engineer in the garage when Herb Albert was doing, you know, Herb Albert and the Tijuana Brass was recorded by this guy named Tom May. And Tom May Sr. built the original on the Chaplin lot, you know, the Charlie Chaplin lot, the original A&M studios, which were great studios, you know, even in the early days, in the 70s and stuff, okay? They were fabulous studios. Well, he had an egghead kid, Tom May Jr. He was nice enough to his kid not to torture him with the Hey Jr., so he nicknamed him Benno. So the guy that audio-wise invented A&M records, basically, you know, not musically, but audio-wise. And those, those Tijuana Brass records were, man, they jumped out of the radio at you. They, they were good, you know? I mean, instrumental music that, that made you turn the radio up? That's unheard of. Even in the 60s, that was unheard of, you know? Yeah. Herb Albert and Booker T were the only two people that, you know, consistently could make an instrumental record and make you want to listen to it, okay? So Ben O'May's father, Tom May Sr., was the guy that got Herb started audio-wise, you know? Made all those records sound great. And his... His uh, son was not the recording engineer that his father was, but he was a genius when it came to the nerd stuff, you know. And he's a great guy too. He's just he's, you know, usually when you think of a guy that's a that's a audio analog genius, you think of a guy with thick glasses and a pocket protector and mustard on his shirt. Yeah. But Benno is really a cool guy, and is part of the secret sauce. And between Bernie Grunman, who's got some of the best ears in the world, if not the best ears of the world, and Ben O'May, who's an analog audio genius, they just, they, they're both in their 70s. You know, I think Ben O's 70 by now. I know Bernie is. So he built his mastering desk. Yeah. Okay. And and I mean they're in their seventies, and they're and they're doing things on new music that other people just dream they could do. Wow, you know, that's, that's fascinating. People don't understand that mastering can take twenty, thirty years to to get good at. You know, mastering is like a separate art altogether. Hey, I mean there were there were a lot of guys that were I considered better than me back in the day. I mean, you know, people say, you know, Skip, how'd you get so good? How'd you, how'd you get to where you could fix somebody's mix in 15 minutes? And, you know, I said, look, I'm, I'm, I'm a C guy from the 70s and 80s, okay? It's just all the A and B guys died off. 
So I just kind of floated up near the top because I kept learning and the guys that I learned from died off. So, you know, now I'm the old guy in the room. Well, you know, we, we really appreciate your sharing all this wisdom with us and it's the kind of stuff that really keeps us going. And I think people come back for, you know, I'd love to have you back on a, and do another one because I know we didn't get into everything. So, you know, we're going to, we'll get you back. Okay. Thanks so much, man, for coming. Sure. So that's uh, Studio Secrets A to Z. Anthony J. Resta signing off, and we'll be back soon. Take care. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.